Continuing with the reading, verse 22. I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God is its light, and its lamp is the Lamb. The nations will walk by its light, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. Its gates will never shut by day, and there will be no night there. People will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations. But nothing unclean will enter it. Then the angel showed me the river, the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. And on either side of the river is the tree of life of its twelve kinds of fruit, producing its fruit with each month, and the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. Brothers and sisters, the word of God. Thanks be to God. Amen. There are surprises at the end. We get a glimpse of that at the beginning from the fourth chapter of Revelation. On our second Sunday, we explored some of the ways Revelation is nuanced and moving in unexpected directions. One of those directions is in the fourth chapter when it says, even those who pierced him will see and grieve. Referring to the Roman soldiers who crucified Jesus. A Palestinian friend of mine who lives in Bethlehem is a woodcarver by hand. He carved this carving. It is Jesus holding an individual who has collapsed. Jesus is holding underneath his arms, holding him up. It's a strange image until you notice in the right hand of the man who's collapsed is a mallet. It's the man, my Palestinian friend said after he carved it, who had nailed Jesus the cross. And he's just discovered that he has been forgiven. And he collapsed. And yet Jesus holds him. There are surprises at the end of Revelation. Perhaps you heard about the fellow who was given a tour of heaven. St. Peter was taking him from banquet hall to banquet hall, and there were the Lutherans and the Methodists and the Catholics and the Episcopalians and the Methodists. And then there was a curtain, and behind the curtain, the man could hear singing. He said, who's back there? St. Peter said, oh, that's the Baptists. They think they're the only ones here. (laughs) There are surprises at the end. This... Fascinating 
book of Revelation is so unique in our New Testament canon. There are little bits and pieces in other places where we get this apocalyptic imagery, these visions and signs, these bizarre inklings of the way the apocalyptic writers would create and conjure these fascinating illustrations in words that are strange to our ears and imaginations. At the same time, there is a real contrast in the way Revelation portrays the reality that John the Elder is experiencing in around 95 AD to what other writers in the New Testament, specifically Paul and Luke. Luke, the author, we believe, of both the Gospel of Luke as well as Acts of the Apostles, a travel companion and good friend of the Apostle Paul. The images conjured and the experiences moving through these passages that Luke writes and Paul writes and then John the Elder writes, held side by side, offer a fascinating picture of how important context is and how history matters for students of the Bible. Let's start in our journey through this final piece of the puzzle of our series through Revelation and the surprises we will see at the end with this side-by-side look at how fascinating this journey is. In Romans chapter 13, we're going to contrast this with Revelation chapter 13 and Revelation chapter 17. But notice now in Revelation, or, sorry, in, in Romans chapter 13, the Apostle Paul writing these words quite sympathetic to the ruling authorities. Listen to what Paul says. Let every person be subject to governing authorities. Those have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists authority resists what God has appointed. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. If you listen carefully, you will hear echoes of preachers who not long ago were using this to justify some pretty crazy stuff. It's important to know Context is important and history matters. Because by the time we get to Revelation, listen to the difference. This calls for wisdom in Revelation chapter 13 says, let anyone with understanding calculate the number of the beast for it's the number of a person. Its number is 666. Not random, but as we learned last week, a very specific calling out of the emperor Nero who is representative of the emperor Domitian. It is the opposite of what Paul just said, respect governing authorities, now Christians are openly saying no. What's happening is wrong and we will not go along with this. It goes further and gets worse. And I will tell you this is R-rated, so if anyone has trouble with mature themes, cover your ears, here it comes. John says in chapter uh, 17, I will show you the judgment of the, here it is, great whore who is seated on the many waters with whom the kings on earth have committed fornication and with wine of whose fornication the inhabitants of the earth have become drunk. 
I'm sorry if this offends you, but it's in the Bible. I will tell you the mystery of the woman. This calls for a mind that has wisdom. The seven hills are the seven mountains on which the woman is seated, clearly calling out Rome, Georgia. If you've been to Rome, Georgia, they take great pride in the fact that there's seven hills, and so therefore it's called Rome. Clearly, John the Elder is looking forward and saying, this is a bad place. Do not go to Rome, Georgia. It clearly is focused on the seven hills of Rome, Italy, and the empire it has fostered, and the kings that are following the whore that sits on the mountain of the seven hills. This is a complete contrast to what Paul said. Be subject to governing authorities. Rulers are not a terror to good conduct, except in 95, it's different now. The beast, 666, and the great whore seated on the seven mountains. What has happened? Well, several things. In 64, July and August of 64 AD, Nero fiddled while Rome burned. We've heard that, many of us, since we were children. What does it mean? Well, Nero, it turns out, wanted to expand his palace on the Palatine Hill. The problem was there were houses in the way of where he wanted to expand, down near the Circus Maximus and by the River Tiber. So he paid some people to go down and strategically light fires among the houses of those poor people that lived in the wooden houses with houses with roofs made of straw. The houses burned quickly, but the wind shifted and the rest of Rome, two-thirds of it, ended up going up in flames with countless unimaginable damage and countless deaths. Nero was being blamed. He quickly had to divert attention, so he said it was this troublesome sect of people called Christians. The historian of Rome, Tacitus, gives us detailed and graphic, tragic information Look it up, Google it, what Tacitus says about Nero's persecution in 64, and you will read the horrors of Christians who were bathed in tar and then set aflame to light the garden parties of Nero outside his palace. Even Tacitus says, Romans who are usually accustomed to this kind of brutality were horrified. As you can see, Paul was writing Romans in probably between 54 and 58 AD. Nero had not yet lost his mind, but he was getting close. And by 95, it's clear there are issues, there are ebbs and flows of problems. The empire runs better at some times, depending on who's in power. When Luke was writing the book of Acts, probably around 85 to 90, things weren't so bad. Luke, like Paul, is fairly sympathetic to Roman authority. It was the Romans who built excellent roads, gave excellent postal service, freed the seas of pirates so that early churches could communicate with each other and people could travel. The missionaries had no problems moving from place to place and speaking to people openly about Jesus. And so Luke and Paul understandably are sympathetic and appreciative of the benefits of imperial policy until Domitian. And John the Elder says, we will not stand 
for this. The background then of these passages that are so graphic and troubling lend wisdom to the understanding of the background. Now let's talk about the last battles. Often we think it's one battle, sometimes referred to as the Battle of Armageddon, and movies and book series have a field day with making stuff up. And I want to emphasize that again, making stuff up. You will not let them get away with this anymore because you will see the truth of what John actually says. So let's explore more clearly. What is Armageddon? First of all, it's a beautiful place. Megiddo looking out over the Jezreel Valley, one of the richest valleys for agriculture in all the Middle East. I'm standing here on top of what's called Tel Megiddo, looking out on this rich and beautiful land. It was a place where trade took, uh, was, was for thousands of years quite uh, going on all the time. People moving from one part of the Middle East to another part of the Middle East, moving through the Jezreel Valley, this cultivated place of beauty. But it made sense to early authors that not only was trade taking place, but also battles happened here. So the battle of Armageddon, it made sense in a lot of people's minds, could indeed happen here. Tel Megiddo, a beautiful paradise, located on this trading route, the valley of the Jezreel, moving from the Jordan River Valley, named after my family, yes, moving to the Mediterranean Sea. Megiddo, Tel Megiddo now, because Tells, as you know, are these mounds where one city is built on top of another city so that you have this rich uh, place of, of architectural and anthropological uh, ruins where you can look through and see literally thousands of years of civilization built one on top of another. Tel Megiddo, in Hebrew it is known as Har Megiddon, the Megiddo, which scholars say probably morphed over the centuries into the translation we know of as Armageddon. What happens in this passage now, let's examine it a little more clearly, brought together and consolidated so that we get a general sense of how this battle unfolds. There was a white horse and its rider was called Faithful and True, and his name is called the Word of God. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. Clear enough. Until we examine what's going on when the term is used the word of God. In Genesis, the very first chapter, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was out without form, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the wind, the spirit, the breath of God moved across the face of the waters, and God said, let there be light. And there was light. In other words, for the earliest Jewish people, God spoke creation into being. The word of God brings together all that is and is to be. 
It's repeated again, the concept now in John chapter one, the word of God. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. Moving on through the richness of that passage, revealing to us, this is essentially John's way of giving us the birth story, that this word of God now is merged together with Jesus. And now Revelation in this chapter 19, the word of God, it's important to see how these fit together. It's strange the way this unveils. Jesus is clearly first identified as faithful and true and then called the word of God. And then did you hear what is a part of his battlements? A sword is coming out of his mouth. Ann Smith, who does such a fantastic job of our altar table every week, you notice there's this sword here. Now, if I'm going into battle, I want a sword in my hand, not coming out of my mouth. What a bizarre image. Unless you understand what John is saying, this is not a physical battle. What is it? It's a battle between a truth and a lie. It is speaking the truth to power. Now, we know that all these armies are lined up against the truth. And what happens? Jesus speaks the truth and the lie is defeated. In other words, listen carefully, the battle of Armageddon never happens, at least in the way we're, we're, we're told and shown in movies and in books. But listen again, people are making this stuff up. That's not what John says. What John says is the beast is captured. The false prophet is destroyed. The kings of the earth, what happens to them, we'll find out in just a moment. There's a surprise at the end. What they discover is what they've been following from the truth that is spoken is they've been a part of a lie. The truth is revealed, and now the lie is exposed by the sword that comes from his mouth. The author of Hebrews says, the word of God is as sharp as any two-edged sword. And the truth is spoken, and the lie is exposed. The power of this now merges with a strange passage that a lot of folks aren't real clear what to do with. And I will be honest with you, I'm one of those, because it talks about this thousand-year gap between what happens with this Armageddon encounter and then this, where the dragon and Satan is ultimately destroyed and put into the fiery, what we would call the fiery furnace, but it's the lake of fire and sulfur. Not a pleasant sounding thing. You heard about the preacher maybe that was before a search committee. And the search committee was very concerned about this, this gap between chapter 19 and chapter 21. This is where you get people who are millennialist, people who are pan or on millennialist and people who are just plain premillennialist. The committee was very concerned that the, the pastor answered this question. They said, sir, uh, before we can really go on with our relationship, we want to know, are you a 
premillennialist, an amillennialist, or a millennialist? Well, the pastor just graduated from seminary and had not yet heard these terms. Wasn't quite sure what to do, but wanted to please the committee, so he thought for a moment, and then he said, I think I am a panmillennialist. And they said, a panmillennialist? What is a panmillennialist? Never heard of that before. And he said, well, I just think it's all going to pan out okay. <laughs> well, that's kind of what John seems to be moving us in the direction of. Not only is the dragon, this force of evil, or Satan, that has been motivating and, and making all this terrible stuff happen and, and activating and continuing the lie, but Satan, the dragon, is destroyed along with death dies, as does Hades, now put in the lake of fire, and then judgment ensues, which is important for us to hear. There is judgment. It does matter how we live. It does matter whether we're kind and loving or not. It does matter what we do with our time and our friends and what God gives to us. It matters. And there is clearly a judgment, not just of, of important people, but notice great and small, regular folks and important folks and everybody in between. There is judgment and there are surprises at the end. John says there's no more sea, which is a beautiful image because remember, he's in exile on the Isle of Potmos. He is separated from the people he loves by sea. And it's poignant that he says, no longer will we be separated. In this city that comes down, there will be no sea. It is clear, it's not up in the sky somewhere, but it is here and now. It is God dwelling with us, Emmanuel, wiping tears from our eyes with no death, no mourning, no crying, no pain. In this city, there is no temple, and I love this. Why have a temple when you're in the presence of God? Why have a sun and a moon when you're in the presence of the light and the lamp of the Lamb? There can be no night. There now are these nations that show up. And here's where it gets interesting. The kings of the earth who specifically followed the lie, who were very much embedded, remember how in the 17th chapter, they were drunk with the wine of fornication. And yet here's one of these surprises. The nations... And the kings bring their glory into this sacred space. By the way, shaped as a perfect cube, 15,000 meters wide, sorry, 1,500 meters, sorry, 1,500 miles wide, deep, and a cube, whatever however you describe a cube, to represent a recreation and an expansion of, get this, the holy of holies in the temple. Now, here among you and me in this place, and the gates remain forever open, excluding no one ever. It's an image that conjures eternal surprises, and it's one that 
John portrays as the end that can also represent a new beginning. One era merging into the next. Even a bending of earth time into God time. Kronos mingled with Kairos. Revelation, while speaking in graphic terms and images of some kind of magnificent conclusion to all that is and was, still envisions what is along with what is to be. John's revelation imagines not only the beyond, but also the very near. Kairos woven into Kronos. Repeatedly, Revelation emphasizes a victory already accomplished, a lamb already slaughtered, thorns already crowned, a cross already nailed, a tomb already empty. Armageddon appears not to have happened in the way that we assumed and have been told. Why? For John and for the Bible in general, the battle was already fought on Golgotha, won on Calvary, commemorated at the tomb, communicated in the garden, celebrated among the early disciples, remembered in the Lord's Supper, magnified at Pentecost, amplified with missionary journeys, multiplied in the early church, persecuted among the powers and the principalities, deliberated in the councils, sanctified in the churches, living still alive and well, very much in the here and now. Any surprises at the end of Revelation happen merely for those of us not paying close enough attention to God's presence among us every day, here and now. Kairos, God's timing, deftly merging with Kronos, our timing, a continual thin place. In this masterful drama, John reminds us the unveiling eschatology of Revelation reveals numerous surprises. And in our limited understanding of God's providence, it is not our role to even speculate on who is saved or how many are saved or why these crazy kings of the earth or our own personal enemies seem to be offered salvation when we prefer that they suffer terribly in eternal punishments. The power of John's vision lives on with this healthy tension of surprise and providential privilege. Instead, in Revelation, we experience a God ultimately portrayed in the Lamb, slaughtered. Not to satisfy an angry deity, but freely given to make us one. An atonement that offers an at-one-ment to bring together strangers and make us kindred, sometimes reluctant, often arguing, but brothers and sisters nevertheless. An at-one-ment, too, even more of heaven and earth, gently merging time and eternity through the power of sacrificial love. And in doing so, we experience a God who, as Eugene Boring once said, a God who lives, a God who loves us, even when we do not love back. A God who loves us, even when we cannot love ourselves. A God who forgives us when we do not forgive others. 
in a God who still believes in us and forgives us when we do not forgive ourselves. A God who believes in us when we have lost our faith or never had faith to begin with. This paradoxical God, a God who believes in us when we cannot believe in ourselves. A God who saves us when we do not believe we need saving. And a God who redeems us when we do not think we are worth the trouble. These surprises at the end of Revelation, these paradoxes of God, have been evident since that first resurrection morning. The same spirit that awoke Jesus on the third day stands ready even now to resurrect our own troubled souls. Those same hands that ripped apart the curtain of the temple remain ready to break down every dividing line of demarcation and division. The paschal lamb of liberation, the wind that parts the waters, the passion that moves the prophets, the wisdom that guides the humble, the spirit that calms the storm, the Jesus that shares the boat, is and was and is to come, the hope that lifts us up, the peace that passes understanding, the love that will not let us go, and the joy that will not be denied. I love the way Isaac Watts, that great hymn writer of the 1700s, puts it in his tremendous Christmas hymn, Joy to the World, the Lord is come. Using that creative merging of Middle English with what John very clearly represents throughout the book of Revelation. The Lord is come. It is very present tense, also merging with clear future tense. The Lord is come. Let heaven and nature sing, which John beautifully uses in the fourth chapter of Revelation when we have this bizarre image of these four beasts, one with a human face, one with the face of an eagle, one with the face of a lion, one with the face of an ox, representing human beings, domesticated animals, the ox, wild animals, the lion, flying animals, the eagle, all creation singing at the foot of the throne, giving glory to God. Let all nature and heaven sing. And I love the third verse of Isaac Watts' Joy to the World, which I often had misunderstood and mispronounced growing up. In this third verse, the last line says, what I thought was and always sang, for as the curse is found. But I was misunderstanding the middle letter of that first word. It's not for as the curse is found. It is far as the curse is found. Using clearly Psalm 139, where can I go from your presence? Whither shall I flee from your spirit? If I, make my, if I go to heaven, you're there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you're there. If I take to the wings of the morning or go to the farthest limits of the sea, even there, your hand shall guide me and your right hand shall hold me fast. Far as the curse is found, there is nowhere in this world or in the universe that God is not and will not reach out and hold you. No more let sins and sorrow grow, nor thorns infest the ground. 
He comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. He rules the world with truth and grace and makes the nations prove the glories of his righteousness and the wonders of his love. This, brothers and sisters, is the good news of Revelation. The surprise at the end. It is the good news of the Bible. It is the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ, who is and was and is to come, the Almighty. Thanks be to God. Amen.